of the seven innings podcast on the road to the women's college series we are now less than a month away from selection Sunday as we get things going geared up towards the postseason please follow along with us on social media at seven innings podcast that's where you can get your lineup card for the show every week I'm Beth Moens our cast of characters this week Michelle Smith Holly Rowe Amanda Scarborough and making her TV podcast Debut, it's D-Lo with the V-Lo. Welcome aboard, Danielle Laurie. Great show lined up for you, including Awesome in Austin. Yes, and Osterman's Big Day. Of course, we've got another Thursday throwdown coming your way. World Series trivia, we're going to introduce that. And also a big weekend preview. Got a lot going on, uh, including uh, Clemson and Florida State, the Hogs and the Gators, And that terrific matchup in Big 12 country with Texas and Oklahoma State. But, of course, we start with the big news this week. The horns hooked them, Amanda Scarborough. First of all, congratulations to Oklahoma on that 40-game win streak. And congratulations to Texas for finally breaking through. Yeah, absolutely, Beth. And did you know that Oklahoma had beat Texas 23 straight games and that Texas had not beat them since April of 2014? So it had been a while in Oklahoma, as Oklahoma does. They just have streak after streak, stat after stat. But what stuck out to me is watching Haley Dolcini pitch for Texas, the transfer from Fresno State. The way that she was able to pitch not only game one, but also game three, Three and go up against Oklahoma for 14 innings was just so impressive, you guys. And she was a good matchup for Oklahoma because of how she throws hard into them. She's able to work them inside with her screwball and then also up on their hands with her rise ball too. Texas fought within this series, no doubt. It was an accomplishment that they only got run ruled just once. So even though they didn't win this series, they did win that one game, and they didn't get run ruled more than one time, which against Oklahoma is always the biggest accomplishment. But, you guys, this is why Mike White brought in Haley Dolcini for wins like this, for games like this. She started out at the beginning of the season a little bit slow, but the way that she's been pitching as of late has to give Texas high hopes in the postseason, in the postseason and uh, and wanting her to feel better in the circle and help get them some wins. Yeah, I this series to me was so much fun to watch because not only does it give hope to the rest of the teams that there's a chance, hey, these guys can be beaten, but it just goes to show if you follow a really good game plan, and there was a big difference from game one to game three that I don't think you could see with the naked eye by Dulcini, but her ability game three to keep the ball down in the zone and go east-west a little bit more, I think elevated and made her rise ball that much better. I'm going to turn the tables here and look at OU and look at the fact that Jordy Ball, this is the first time she's been tested all season. Friday night, 15 strikeouts. This was a big, big win for her. But this is the first time that she's been tested with not 9, 10, 11 runs up on the board and facing a potent offense. We can't forget the fact that she is a freshman, you guys. But at the end of the day, these Oklahoma pitchers aren't getting the same amount of innings as everybody else in the nation simply because they're blowing teams out and run ruling so much. It's different facing your own team in an inner squad game. 
So I think this was a true test for Jordy Ball and for Oklahoma to kind of figure it out a little bit and see how the freshman is going to be tested when she starts to face potent offenses with not a lot of run support by OU. Danielle, I think those are really great points. And I think that I, I'm going to take this from the Oklahoma point of view. As I remember talking to Patty Gasso to start this season, and she said that looking back, the loss at Georgia last year maybe was the most important thing that happened to the Sooners all season. Because human nature is such that it's hard to think, oh, we still need to keep improving. We still need to change these things when you keep winning. I remember talking to Nick Saban at Alabama about that when football was on a long winning streak is how do you learn if it's not from a loss? And so even though I'm sure they don't want to lose this game, I think it's interesting psychology. Their streak ends at 40, just shy of the Arizona all-time streak of 47 games sent back in 96-97. And I think it's interesting psychology for the Sooners moving forward. Does Patty Gasso have their attention better on here's what we need to change, here's what we need to fix, and how can we lock in on this? Some of the greatest streaks of all time that Oklahoma has been a part of. And I just think it's really cool because Patty Gasso actually went back and studied UConn women's basketball when they were on their 111-game winning streak. How do you coach when you just keep winning? And so I just think it's very interesting psychology of what's next for the Sooners and how do they handle this loss? Yeah, more on that in just a second. Here's what ha uh, Haley Dolcini had to say after the big Texas win. Haley, I know it's an emotional moment for you. What's going through your mind right now? I mean, um, a lot of adrenaline, a lot of fight, I think. A lot of emotion in the sense that this is the team that we knew we were from the beginning. And so, you know, we had a rough first go in that tournament in Florida. And there was a lot of doubt. But, you know, this was, this was us playing as a collective unit. And I couldn't be more proud of this group. Haley, talk to me about what adjustments or conversations did you and Coach White have from Thursday to today? Because I'm going to say as a pitcher, I can see a difference. I don't know that the casual fan knows that there were minor adjustments, but what was that conversation and what did you do just a little bit differently today? Yeah, I mean, I think just really, really establishing that low screwball in on the corners and then, you know, making sure that curveball was enough off the plate because, I mean, there are they're a tough offense and you can't take a pitch off and I mean adrenaline gets the best of me on that one that gets out but you just got to tip your cap that's who they are so that insurance runs from me as hit I mean that's that's good softball congratulations Haley yeah that was big for Mia Scott too congratulations to Texas on a big win and just to button up the Oklahoma side of this what you were talking about Holly I think this is great for the sport of softball whether it's like the Alabama's football team, whether it's like the UConn basketball team, we love to watch the pursuit of excellence. And we also need teams in our sport that you either love them or hate them, right? You want a big rooting interest or you want to be able to root against somebody. And what Oklahoma has done in their pursuit of excellence, I think has been a lot of fun to watch. And I'm really looking forward to their response moving forward. Remember, we will have the Bedlam series coming up in our Thursday throwdown uh, new series on ESPN coming up in early May. Well, of course, it not only was a good day for Texas, but it was a great day for number eight, Michelle Smith. Kat Osterman gets the jersey retired on the 40 acres and somebody that you've known pretty much her entire life. Yeah, absolutely, Beth. Uh, it was an amazing day for Kat Osterman. It was also her birthday. And how about, you know, Texas comes away with that big win. So, uh, you know, spending a little bit of time for with, uh, you know, talking about Kat Osterman, when you start really looking at her numbers, 
uh, on the 40 acres, staggering 136 wins while at Texas. 85 of those were shutouts. How about 2,265 strikeouts, um, a, a whip below 0.5, an ERA below 0.5. I mean, the, the numbers really are staggering. But I love about Pat Osterman, though, is that I go back and think about when I first met her. She was about um, five foot four inches tall, and she was shorter than me. And then worked with her a little bit. The following year, she comes back, and she's three inches taller than me and spinning the ball and just doing so much <laughs> long levers. Just an amazing career with Team USA, and I love the fact that, you know, she was her best at 62, 63 miles an hour. She didn't try to overthrow the ball. She knew that her job was to make the ball dance through the zone, and, and as someone who watched her pitch, help her with her curveball, and did um, a lot of different things with Kat Osterman, it was a pleasure to watch her. Uh, she's a legend in our game, and we were lucky enough to have her sit down with Jen Schroeder to talk a little bit about her career. We're joined by three-time Olympian, four-time All-American, Kat Osterman. Kat, let's go to the very beginning. Okay. Tell us about the emotions you felt when you found out that number eight was going to be retired. Yeah, so that goes back to like fall of 2019, I believe it was. Um, Crystal Conte, I've talked to him a few times since he's been athletic director at Texas, and he had kind of mentioned that he was making some changes to where, yeah, he wanted with uh, female jerseys to be retired and um fall of 19 I got the call that it was really happening and he said it's going to get retired um I remember just being in the kitchen getting the call I don't know why I'm always in the kitchen when that man calls me but um that seems to be a common theme and um tears kind of started welling up in my eyes and my husband was kind of sitting next to me like what's going on and so when I hung up I told him I was like well he said it's gonna it's finally happening like jerseys are going to be retired for females at Texas and just truly honored um I think it's awesome that you know he decided to make that a priority when he took over at Texas and when did you find out that your retirement ceremony was not just going to be on your birthday but also when Texas played the Oklahoma Sooners so they gave me a list of dates for options. Um, and you know, it's never, there's never one date that works out for everybody. Um, and so the, the two big options were the LSU series or the Oklahoma series. And, um, there's like no win situation. So let me just take my birthday. And to be honest, um, knowing it was Oklahoma weekend, I thought it would be really cool with all the Texas fans, but plus the fact that I got to play against Patty Gasso, um, you know, in the big 12 and, just to be able to have a coach that you respect a lot and played well against, like, I shouldn't say play well against, but played against for so long and like a, two programs that just, it's a rivalry, but there's a huge respect. I just thought that was, that was a cool situation. And um, the day ended up being amazing. I know I'm sure you'll ask more questions, but just to see Sooner fans um, be standing with the Texas fans and clapping and Patty gave me flowers and an incredible card um, so it was just a cool moment to have softball fans in general all in one place and, um, you know, be on the field for that. Yeah, let's talk about the energy at McCombs because me watching from home, I had goosebumps the entire game. From you throwing out the first pitch to Megan Willis, seeing both Sooner and Longhorn fans alike that were there to celebrate you. What did that feel like? Uh, it was pretty incredible. Um, you know, I've said there's only like one other time in my career at Texas where I felt like, uh, kind of, you know, 
the movie star ish kind of thing. Like everyone is, uh, is allotting you. And like, um, and that was when we had, we had put, we had thrown back to back. I don't remember the order, no hitter, perfect game in a regional. And we went over to the baseball game the next, that night and everyone standing ovation for Megan and I, when we walked in. And um, so it was similar feeling just the fact that, you know, I think you realize how many people not just respect what I did at Texas, but just my career and what I keep trying to do in the, in the sport of softball. And um, it was pretty incredible. And let's talk about the game. You're in the booth, so you have to call it pretty fairly, but what emotions were running through you? What were you feeling when you knew Texas had a chance to upset the number one team in the nation? Yeah. Um, it's, it's really hard. Cause like Texas scored that first run in the whole time and one run's not enough. Like you can't, you can't hang on to this one run lead. Like, OU's going to try to mount a comeback at some point. Um, and to be honest, when OU walked Janae Jefferson to load the bases with two outs, I was a little nervous. Cause I, you know, Janae's the goat. She's like, she is the best position player to ever play in, at Texas. And obviously her offensive records are going to be stand for, let's probably be honest, almost as long as I think my pitching records are going to stand, like it's going to be hard for someone to come in and break those. Um, but, uh, they walked her and freshman Mia Scott as electric as she has been. I was like, this is such a big moment for a freshman right now. And, um, knowing how tough Jordy ball is too. It was like, which, which freshman is going to crack first kind of thing. Alex is always laughing at me. Cause like Texas does something I don't agree with. I throw a pin in the air and when something happens, I'm like, throwing my arms in the air, like trying to sound unbiased, but probably my physical reactions are not. Um, so when Mia Scott hit that triple, I knew at that point I was like, okay, Dulcini's in control. And as a senior, she knows how to handle those situations. And it was just like, figure out how to get three outs before they get three people on base and you're good. Okay, last question. When that last out was made, Texas is on defense. They get Oklahoma out in the seventh. Uh, run us through what went through your head and your heart in that moment. Oh, so it went up and like the first thing I was in my head, like Bella, go get it. Bella, go get it. Bella, go get it. Bella Dayton caught it. And I was first laughing because she like chucks the ball one way, chucks her glove the other way. It's, <laughs> it was a spastic reaction. Um, but at the same time, I, um, just in my heart, so proud of that, this group for Texas. It's been way too many years since we've had even one victory over Oklahoma. And so for the, the program as a whole to finally get that W and, you know, Coach White is trying to put together something and um, that looks like it's the first step. So it was really cool to watch their reactions. You celebrated your Jersey retirement, your entire family was there and you celebrated a big Texas win. Sounds like a pretty good weekend for me. It can't get any better. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. What a cool day for Kat Osterman. I mean, the Jersey retirement on its own would have been incredible. But then, of course, Texas getting the win on her birthday. It's pretty much the trifecta. But being from Texas myself and playing against her, not only at AM, but also in high school as a freshman, she was a senior. And I went up to bat against her for the first time. One of my first memories of, was hitting against her, not even pitching against her, but hitting off of her and seeing a ball moved I, the way that I had never seen a pitch move before in my life. That in itself is Kat Osterman to a T. And also just the way that she competed, you guys, and Danielle specifically, I know you played a lot against her as well and, and remember her for that being that dri being that driving competitor that she is and just you love to compete against her in the circle, but you also as a fan love to watch her compete and show that emotion.
Yeah, Kat, I mean, I've been very fortunate enough to compete against her on the Olympic stage and then also compete and play with her as a teammate. And for a lot of people that don't know, Kat and I have clashed back in the day when we were younger. And it's been kind of cool to see our friendship evolve. And a special moment for me, honestly, was this last Olympic Games, having my children, Kat having her stepdaughter Bracken, it just hits differently. It means more. The training means more. And there's a lot more on the line. And I think, you know, I shed a tear watching her throw that first pitch when her stepdaughter was there and just when you have those little eyes on you that are not only softball fans but that you get to make an impact day to day it's just super special so really proud of Kat and excited to see whatever she wants to take on next um I just wanted to hear more information about the clashes are you not are you just going to leave us hanging with no dramatic stories <laughs> it's it's not for tv time <laughs> <laughs> okay, that will be for wine, wine time at the World Series. Um, I just want to congratulate Pat, uh, Kat Osterman because we saw her pitch at the World Series and she was probably one of the most dominant college softball pitchers we've ever seen. And the thing that I really want to compliment her on is she did not have a ton of run support throughout her career. So think of the pressure that she was pitching under year in and year out, like I have to keep this to zero or one or we're not going to win and that they won as many games as they did. I just think it's a real testament to Kat and her mental makeup that she was under duress pitching in the circle. And, um, man, she is one of the best we've ever seen step into that circle at Oklahoma City. And that is why she is grade eight on our lineup card. And uh, wine time at the Women's College World Series, the clubhouse leader for the name of the episode, Holly Rowe, way to get us off and running. Hey, still to come on the podcast, a race to the finish. And also we'll take a closer look at who's in bubble trouble on the road to the Women's College World Series. Wine time. Welcome back to the Seven Innings Podcast. Uh, BMO, Scarborough, Dilo with the Velo, Horo, and Smitty. And it's time to talk about racing to the finish in the regular season in our conferences around the country, as well as uh, talk a little bit about who is on the host bubble. Oh, I hear the race cars. Keep in mind, we're going to talk Big 12 and Big 10 a little bit later in our weekend preview because they have big series coming up. So we're going out west. Dilo with the Velo is going to. Uh, share her thoughts on the Pac-12 race, Danielle. Honestly, Arizona State, the fact that they're 12-0 and 0 right now, I thought for sure it was going to be UCLA right out of the gate, but Arizona State has been a force to be reckoned with. 73 home runs on the season, 14 of them from Sidney Sanders and Acuna with a 462 batting average. This team can slug it. But really for me, Arizona State, Trish Ford has done a phenomenal job with their pitchers in the circle. Mac Morgan, 14 and one, only a freshman, as well as Schuld, nine and two, and Lopez, six and one. So for me, Trish Ford has just done such a good job to be able to get a pitching staff rolling for Arizona State. And this is a team that I would not want to compete against when I'm going into the postseason. ASU has this completely in their control. They're going to be playing Stanford this weekend, which we know UCLA lost the series, dropped two of three, and then they're heading to Cal, and they're playing Chelsea Spencer's gritty group of women that she's done a phenomenal job of getting them back. So honestly, it's going to be up to Arizona State when they host UCLA to see what they're made of. And I think UCLA came out of the gate hot at that St. Pete Clearwater Elite Invitational, and everyone thought, hey, this team is going to win the Pac-12 outright. 
but they have it in their control if they want to, but they cannot afford to drop any games. I know they're facing Oregon State this weekend, and obviously, you know, Mariah Mazon in the circle and a 1.21 ERA. She's phenomenal, and Frankie Hamoudi, Laura Berg can do some damage with that Oregon State Beavers team. So honestly, for me, UCLA and Arizona State, that game is penciled, and I'm stoked to see how it's going to end up. Danielle, great job at just like memorizing all those stats. Like I just watched you that entire time. You didn't look down once and you were just like spouting them out like it was nothing. So major props to you. Okay, going on over in the ACC is something that will grab your attention because when I went to look at the standings, I was just shocked to just triple check that I knew Virginia Tech was in the lead, but then I saw Duke behind them and Florida State in third. We're used to seeing Florida State up at the top of the standings, but not at this point with the way that Virginia Tech and Duke have played. Now, this is close between Virginia Tech and Duke, but you'll see Virginia Tech has 15 wins and Duke just has 14. So because they lost it, Duke lost a couple of games to Notre Dame because of whether those were potentially one or two wins that they could have gotten. But this Virginia Tech team, you guys, has been on a mission ever since they lost in Super Regionals to UCLA. I feel like this team was ready to take on one of the hardest strength schedules in the country. Pete DeMore said, he wanted to challenge his team to be able to potentially win an ACC championship, but to most importantly, try to grab a top eight seed because he was tired of traveling like he did in regionals and super regionals. So because Virginia Tech is so strong with their pitchers, Keely Rochard, Emma Limley, and I love the way that their offense is coming on strong. He made a valiant effort with their offense to swing and try to hit the ball hard. Their batting average is a little bit up. Their slugging percentage is a little bit up. And you guys, this is a team that is so strong, and they have been all year. They've had tons of big wins. Yeah, Amanda, and you talk about the ACC so strong and the Pac-12 so strong. Well, how about the SEC as well with Arkansas at top? This has just been a crazy year because I feel like in the AC, excuse me, the SEC, anyone can beat anyone, but Arkansas has done a really good job of winning every series they've been in. They are the only team to do that so far. And when you really look at them situationally with their statistics, they're going to be top in batting average. They're top in ERA as well as fielding. And that's the reason they're in that number one spot. They do, though, however, have a huge, huge series this weekend against Florida. And I think this is going to be the make or the break of the season. So if Arkansas can consider to really do a good job with their hitting, they're playing at home. So to me, that is the advantage because they're a home run hitting team with 81 home runs on the year. Five hitters in the lineup with double digits home runs. Danielle Gibson, Hannah Gamble, you name it. Lenny uh, Malkin, they have just been outstanding. And I think that Shanice Dells has been pitching outstanding in the circle. So this Arkansas team really has an opportunity to hold their own destiny. Big series against Florida this weekend. Okay, so I wanted to say one quick thing. I know that I say this pretty much every podcast episode we've done this season, but Keely Rochard told me in February, just watch, there is something special about this team. And I just love that she had a sense of who they were at that point in the season, that they could do something special, and they have really lived up to those expectations. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right, Holly. And, of course, when we saw them early in the year, it was all about hosting. It was all about staying at home for the NCAA tournament. So as we take a look at the host bubbles, remember, it's not just a bubble about who gets into the tournament, but who gets to host a regional and who gets to host the super regionals. So as we take a look at our host bubbles, oh, I love the sound effects. Nice. The nice. sound effects are swimming amazing. underwater right now. 
But, <laughs> but Host Bubbles is number four. So I think we're going to start out with the super regional host bubble. That means if you're good enough to be in contention for a top eight seed, you could stay at home for both weekends. And that would be teams like Florida, Clemson, Arkansas, and Oklahoma State, all on that supers bubble. And then the regional bubble would include teams like Kentucky and Washington, UCF, and Notre Dame. I think it all is going to hinge on how many ACC teams will host. Is it going to be four? Is it going to be five? I think, Smitty, we'll start with you, number one. Uh, you need to qualify what is the difference between a huge series and a huge, huge series. <laughs> and also, who has some huge, huge series down the stretch in terms of that bubble? Yeah, I think, well, number one for Oklahoma State, they have a tough schedule the rest of the way out. They're going to be facing Florida State in the Thursday throwdown as well as Oklahoma. And so if they can pick a couple of those really big wins, I think that's going to definitely help them. But, you know, I think the committee always goes back late in the season to see who's playing well. Unfortunate injuries. There's all those little nuances that can make a huge difference this time of year. Holly, what do you think? Well, I think it is a big deal because if you guys remember, Duke ended the season so strong last year and ended up having to go on the road, and that really was a contributing factor in their NCAA tournament experience. And I thought it was a little bit controversial last year. So I think what we're looking at is the ACC wants to leave no doubt this year in the committee's minds, and it is going to be very interesting. But, um, I, I think that looking at what happened to some of these teams last year is a consideration as well. Yeah, you guys uh, pointed out Oklahoma State as well as Arkansas, but I feel like Florida has the potential right now at sitting at um, eight in the RPI. They play USF, Arkansas, LSU, and Florida State. Like they have potential to either take the bull by the horns and grab that seed and prove that they are a top eight team, or they have potential to drop some games and fall out and have to travel for supers, which Beth, I know, has been a while. Yeah. Uh, all kinds of good stuff to watch on those uh, host bubbles down the stretch. And I'm going to go ahead and say a huge, huge series is set to begin on Thursday. That means they're both in the top 20, and there are conference implications as well for Clemson and Florida State. Still to come on the 7 Innings Podcast, we will take a little deeper dive into that and shag some stats and hit that mailbag as well on the road to the Women's College World Series. FSU this year. I think that'll be a very fun environment to play in and just kind of get that rivalry going. They're good. They're athletic. Valerie Cagle. She's going to do what she does and it's going to be a great series. They're the champs of the league and they're the program that everybody aspires to be. You want to toe up and get in the box and see what they got. We're pumped to play them. Oh, we got another Thursday night throwdown coming your way. Clemson at Florida State. And we've got a big weekend of softball to come, so let's jump right in with it. Michelle, you and I will be there in Tallahassee for uh, the big ACC matchup. Yeah, I'm excited to see uh, Clemson and Florida State kind of bash for the first time. Um, it's hard to believe what, because of COVID and everything last year at the schedule that they haven't had a chance to be able to play. So um, this is the first time, though, that these teams will be stepping on the field together. Valerie Cagle has just been 
outstanding. She has been roughed up a little bit this year. Everybody knows what to expect from her. She's still swinging a good bat uh, uh, in the circle. I do feel like a little bit um, she's had some issues, wild pitches, maybe based on balls a little bit higher than normal. But for Florida State, they have just been outstanding. Florida State, as always, is just a team that can do it all and obviously led by Catherine Sandercock at 22-1, that ERA just above one. Valerie Cagle as well, her strikeout numbers outstanding. So we're going to see both of these pitchers do a good job in the circle to leave their very strong respective teams. But it starts with Sandercock, who's pitched to contact. Danielle Watson as well with a lot of power. The home runs have been flying out of the park for Florida State. They just have this ability to put runs up on the board. Michaela Edenfield, the freshman catcher, has been lights out. I think she's been a big surprise for a lot of people. I love watching her. I am so excited to go in and really see this great series, Beth. I know I'll for sure be watching you guys on Thursday night. I, I think it's interesting whenever you look at the actual rankings of this matchup with Clemson, I think it was 17 that they're ranked. Their RPI says something otherwise because their RPI is nine and Florida State's is five. So I feel like Clemson has a real opportunity on the road against Florida State to pick up some wins. And we're just talking about host bubbles and Clemson right there on the host bubbles of trying to hop into the top eight seed. Okay, so we have so many good games going on this weekend, but one that I am keeping a close eye on, mostly I think because I'm going to be calling it on Saturday, is Texas at Oklahoma State. They Last year, these two teams played each other seven times. You guys, that never happens. You never play a team seven times, and including they play each other in Super Regionals, and Oklahoma State ended Texas season. And In fact, Oklahoma State went 6-1 and one against Texas, but that's not the only storyline. It's the fact that Miranda, Miranda Elish is wearing a different kind of orange, and now she's playing for Oklahoma State. Remember, she just came from Texas, so you know that she's going to get the ball. You know she's going to be in the starting lineup. I can't wait to watch Miranda Elish play against her old team. Oh, it's going to be so good. I'm excited to witness a little Arkansas, a little Florida. I think this is a great opportunity for Florida. We know Arkansas stands up top. But for me, getting the opportunity to see Arkansas in person was just next level, right? They have a murderer's row in Gibson, Gamble, Malkin, and Ellsworth with 56 home runs. And Looking at last weekend for Arkansas, they found a way to produce runs, got a little bit and stubbed their toe Saturday. But like going into this Florida series, both these teams manufacture runs completely differently. 81 home runs for Arkansas and only 29 for Florida. Florida has the speed. They have 98 uh, stolen bases led by Skylar Wallace. So I think it's going to be really cool to see how both of these teams find a way to score some runs. On the flip side, they're pretty similar in the circle. When I think of Hightower, you know she's going to get two out of the three games to compete against this potent Arkansas offense. But when I think about Arkansas's pitching, Shanice Dells from last weekend is the real MVP. Got the win against a good Kentucky offense Friday and had the trust from Coach Courtney Dyfel to get the ball in the rubber match on Sunday to seal the deal. So for me, the question is Mary Half. Is she going to be able to go into Gainesville and produce? We know that she's been in the SEC for five years. She's gotten tested. But when I got to call the game Saturday night, those 0-2-1-2 pitches missed over the heart of the plate and Kentucky exposed her. So this is going to be an interesting series to see. I think it's ultimately going to come down to pitching. Are both these separate teams pitchers going to be able to stand tall and do some damage? 
There are so many runs being scored. I want to say that everything comes down to pitching because we have three pitchers here, but the way that the ball is leaving the park is insane. So I mentioned Texas OSU, and I forgot to mention the standings. Oklahoma State, you guys, is actually at the top of the Big 12 standings. They're 11-1, and one, and OU is just 8-1. Mm-hmm. and one. So Oklahoma State sits up top, so they have a chance to get some wins against Texas. Now, in the Big 10, because we've yet to talk a lot about the Big 10, Nebraska is at the top of the Big Ten standings, and they are undefeated. In fact, they're on an 18-game win streak. And also, they have a player named Billy Andrews having a breakout season, 18 home runs, 45 RBIs. This is Nebraska's best start in conference play since 2014. So Nebraska is standing out to me. They have a chance to potentially win the Big Ten over there with Michigan being a little bit down. But, Michelle, there's one team behind Nebraska that also starts with an N who's having a pretty dang good season. Yes, there is, Amanda, and that would be Northwestern. And guess what? They have a whoop lefty in the circle. And Danielle Williams has been outstanding this year. And, you know, I think this week, though, is the test because they have a midweek doubleheader with Indiana on Wednesday. And then they're going to have to go right in and play. Uh, excuse me, that's Illinois midweek and then Indiana over the weekend. And Williams, though, from that left side just has so much movement, so much spin. Her curveball, her rise ball, her numbers this year are, are great. She's 18-2. and two. Um only 36 walks on the year, so she's been doing a really good job. Rachel Lewis has been a big bopper for them. She just set the home run record for Northwestern. So I think this team, very, very talented. But I think that you're really going to have to look at this week to see how they can do on a really big matchup. Again, against Illinois, a doubleheader. And Lewis has been really leading the charge. And if she can continue to put runs up on the board, I think that doubleheader doesn't hurt them. They'll have Williams in the circle. But again, it's going to be really short rest going into a big Indiana series this coming weekend. Yeah, congratulations to Rachel Lewis. She passes Tammy Williams. And now there are only three names in front of her in Big Ten history. And that would be Romero, Finley, and Martyr. So uh, that is a great list to be a part of. Also, shout out to Rachel. Scored on all ten of her plate appearances in that series with Purdue. A little love for Illinois and Sydney Sickles. This is perhaps one of the biggest series in their history coming up midweek against Northwestern, as Michelle referenced. Great to see Kayla Conwent back out there for Wisconsin and Maddie Schwartz, the pitcher to watch in the circle. It's a big weekend around the Big Ten. Of course, always when it's Ohio State and Michigan in anything. Still to come, a little World Series trivia for you. Holly's going to lead us into shagging some stats and a whole lot more on the 7 Innings Podcast. Courtney Dune just needs one more big out. That's it. She's come so far for UCLA. And this should be it. This is the ball game, right? Oh. Blazers. They're the 1982 NCAA Division I softball champions. Watches this ball be driven deep to left. A home run for Prosta, and UCLA is the national champion. Jocelyn Forrest and Candace Harper, two seniors who have come to four consecutive Women's College World Series. Oh, yeah. Strike three. 
A huge honor to celebrate the anniversary of the Women's College World Series this year, 40 years looking back at one of the greatest events in college sports. And because we know that we have someone who has worked over half of those events, we're going to do a little try to stump Beth Mowens, who has worked about almost all of those Women's College World Series. How many years is this, Beth? Ooh, since 1994, I've been I've been filling up my my Women's College World Series Bible right here. Hopefully, the answers to your trivia, Holly, are are in here somewhere. Okay, well, we're very excited to try to stump the legend Beth Mowens on our trivia questions. I'm going to start with who holds the World Series record for total bases in a game? Is it one, Brittany Rogers from Alabama? Two. Andrea Harrison from UCLA, or three, Megan Langenfeld for UCLA. Beth? I am, I am going to go with Andrea, uh, Andrea Harrison as the correct answer there. I, do we have a buzzer that's like, you got it wrong? Because it is. Megan Langenfeld, she had 10 bases in the World Series in 2010. Of course, that was the epic eight inning game against Arizona, and um, it was Megan Langenfeld. Dang. All right, okay, good one. I okay. think I'm next, oh, and, and I don't know. Scarborough? I don't know if my question has um, multiple choices, like Holly, and I don't know if she sent that in or if somebody's gonna do that for me. So we're about to find out. Um, who is the UCLA third baseman who dislocated her left shoulder, sliding into second base in the opening round versus DePaul, and then 48 hours later came back and played and eventually scored the game-winning run against Washington in 1999 in the title game? Wow. Wow. 1999. That's a very I, specific mm, crickets. one. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> crickets. That that felt that felt like personal. I got no idea. <laughs> Julie Adams, I'm sorry. That's I really old. wasn't trying to make oh, it like two. super personal there, but I'm sorry. But what was the answer? <laughs> Julie Adams. Julie Adams, dang it. All right, all right, Julie. <laughs> all right, my turn. Um, there has been 16 schools who have only made one appearance at the Women's College World Series in their program's history. Can you name the five power schools to have done so? Not a multiple choice. <laughs> five power five schools that have only made it once? Oh boy. Mm -hmm. mm. Virginia Tech? Mm-hmm. Mm. Let's see. Virginia Tech. Oregon State? Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's see. Uh, out in the uh, Big Ten? Oh, 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 oh. D don't know that one. A, uh, SEC, only one time out of the SEC, South Carolina? Close. Ah, I'm stumped on the others. Who are the others? A little Amber Pfizer with Minnesota, and then a little Kansas. Oh, Kansas, the Rock Chalkers. Man, you guys are tough. These are good. These are good. <laughs> 
All right, BMO. I got to improve. I got to improve right, BMO, my come World on. Series history. Right here. Smitty? <laughs> BMO. BMO, come on. Right here. Come on. You got me. Right you here. And me. Come on. You and me. You, and you're going to love this question. Here we go. Here we go. Partner, let's go. Locked uh, in. Who was the first? <laughs> who was the first left-handed pitcher to win a national championship? 1983, Texas A&M Aggie, Lori Stoll. Yes! Little lefty love. Good job, Beth. Hey, I got got one right back at you. Rapid fire. D-Lo is unavailable to answer this, but since she's making her TV podcast debut, when they won the national Mm. championship in 2009, 24 days all on the road. Name the two campuses on the East Coast that they had to visit and win at in the regionals and the supers en route to the Women's College World Series. Smittle. UMass. UMass and then Georgia Tech. Oh. Hey. That is right? correct. Hopefully. That is correct. <laughs> well done. Well, okay, Betsy, you we're not perfect, for, uh, but we're very it. proud of you. That was good. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I'm, I'm not feeling inadequate at all. I'm feeling uh, like the passion for, for the World Series and softball is rising me to continue to get better. Because, as we know, it's important to expose our weaknesses so that we can turn them into our strengths. How about that? How about that after you go uh, two and three, I think, in trivia? I'm going to run with that. <laughs> And I'm going to run us right off into break because we still are going to shag some stats and talk about the mailbag. And for the love of God, we're going to give some love to Sarah Feckety coming up on the program. What the Feckety? Holy Chutzler. It is time now for everybody's favorite section of the show, I think. It is time to shrug stats. I'm going to start us off. That wasn't a good one. I I could do better, but I'll leave you with that. Um, Okay, I want to talk about the Big 12 Pitcher of the Week. Coming off the most historic upset maybe we've seen in a long time as the Texas Longhorns beat Oklahoma for the first time in 40 games, and it was Haley Dulcini in the circle. She held the Oklahoma Sooners bats, who were averaging over 400 hitting percentage, to just 100 on the weekend. Haley Dulcini, you are my shuggin' stat. That That is a fabulous one, Holly. My shaggin' stats, yeah, baby, is going to be those teams. You know how I love the alliteration? Flirting with 500. Remember, you need to be 500 or better to get into the NCAA tournament. And there are some pretty significant names here with good RPIs. But they have to make sure through these last couple of weeks of the season that they stay above the 500 mark in order to be in consideration for an invitation. Dino with the velo, what you got? Mine's a little long. I don't have it memorized, so I'm going to have to read it. So eyes are going down. Uh, I took the current top eight ranked teams in the SEC, and I looked at their games in 2021 and 2022 against other Power 5 teams. In 2021, those eight teams held Power 5 opponents to two or less runs in 48% of the games they played. 
And in 2022, they are holding teams to two or less runs in only 33% of games. So that's a minus 31.25% decrease in the amount of games they held opponents to two or less runs. Michelle, what you got? <laughs> Velo with the Velo. Woo, that's mind-blowing. And since there's so many pitchers on this podcast, I decided to go with a hitter. I'm going to go back to the Big Ten and Rachel Lewis, who is just incredible last week. She hit four home runs in her last five at-bats, and she broke the career record at Northwestern. She now has 60 home runs, and she broke Tammy Williams' record of 57 home runs. That held for 13 years. What do you got, Amanda? Well, people probably wonder why we talk about RPI so much, but it's because it's really important, and there's actually stats to back up why it's important in terms of history in the postseason. So going back to 2011, only one eventual Women's College World Series finalist was ranked lower than eight in the RPI that was released right around this time, right around April 16th. And that was Oklahoma in 2017. Their RPI was 13. So, it, you know, the history kind of shows that if you're the top eight in RPI, then the odds are that you're going to do pretty well for this College World Series. Okay, I'm just going to jump in here because this is where someone from the NCAA committee would tell us to say the RPI is just one of many factors that they consider when making their selections. You're welcome. And I would like to I would like to jump in as well on uh, in defense of Amanda Scarborough. The RPI does not equal Amanda's opinion. So if we could just clarify that and get off her back a no. little bit on social no. media, Amanda would be thrilled, and it would allow her to spend more time in our Are mailbag. Are people mean what to her this week, Amanda? <laughs> oh, on occasion, Holly, we'll we'll talk later. You know, when we have World Series wine. Um, so this is from Tom <laughs> Callie, Callie underscore Tom. Will pitchers catch up to the hitters? Seems like home runs and scoring are up. I feel like that's a continual theme. What do you guys think? Okay, um, I've been at home watching and I'm really hot about this topic because we have been at the Women's College World Series before when they haven't called illegal pitches all season long, it feels like, and then all of a sudden they call them at the World Series and it really undermines pitchers' ability to succeed. So I'm just going to throw this out there that I have seen a ton of illegal pitching on television as I'm watching softball the last couple weekends. I just want everybody to really fine-tune it because I just don't want you to get to postseason and have this be called regularly. Are you seeing a lot of illegal pitching? I think the illegal pitches are definitely tough. As much as I want to wash the illegal pitch, I don't want it to turn into anything that is the men's game. I think that the game is just evolving so much where you really have to rely more on a pitching staff. You just don't have the old school feel of a one pitcher out there in the circle. So that I think is going to be the difference maker and is not going to change because hitting is what it is. But pitching, you need one to two to three workhorses that can get through. What do you think? Well, I think that the pitchers are probably um, not going to catch up to the hitters if they keep getting a really, really shrunk strike zone. If they get a good strike zone, I think the pitchers can compete. <laughs> Amanda, what do you think? It seems like we've changed a lot of rules over the last 10, 20 years that have helped offenses. So I feel like with technology and scouting reports, all the things, 
Um, I don't know if the pitchers will ever catch up to the hitters if rules keep changing to help the offenses. Oh, good stuff on the program. And a big round of applause, everybody, for Sarah Feckety, number three, retired at the University of Tennessee, one of our favorites. I don't know if Jersey Meg will allow us to name the show What the Feckety, so I think we will go with World Series Wine, whether you spell that W-I-N-E or W-H-I-N-E. We'll see you soon.